Hi everybody, Michael Davis here. Welcome to Bone to Pick. We are in for a very uh, unique and special opportunity today. Our Artist of the Month is the Living Jazz Archive here at William Patterson University. The Living Jazz Archive is an incredible collection of everything from handwritten scores to uh, date books to instruments to photographs, recordings. It's really a, a very unique and special place. Uh, we are fortunate to have uh, two distinguished gentlemen with us today to uh, uh, kind of lead us and give us an insider's view of, of this uh, archive. Um, Dr. David Dempsey, uh, Professor of Music and Coordinator of the Jazz Studies Program here at William Patterson, a renowned saxophonist, uh, has played with uh, everybody under the sun in the jazz world, is also uh, a regular performer with the New York Philharmonic and the American Saxophone Quartet. A uh, very old dear friend of mine, a, a gentleman I have immense respect for on every level, uh, one of the most gifted and talented composer, arranger, trombonist, vocalist around on the international jazz scene. Uh, he is a three-time Grammy Award nominee. Uh, he is Professor of Composition and Arranging here at William Patterson. So uh, David and, uh, and Pete, thanks so much for uh, taking time out of your guys' schedule to, uh, to share this incredible place with us today. Our pleasure. It's great to thanks have you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Dave, why don't we start with you? You're the curator of this, and, uh, and just give us kind of an overview and maybe a little bit of history uh, as how this got started. Well, uh, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, let's start a jazz art. Let's really make some money. <laughs> let's start a jazz art. It more or less happened to us, and I think, I hope that we have uh, honored these uh, great musicians' legacies in, you know, stepping up to the, to, the, to the plate as far as taking responsibility for it. Thad Jones was the founding director of this program, mm -hmm. and uh, he started the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Band in 1966, and about 10 years ago, uh, some of the members of that band are still on our faculty, John Mosca, uh, Rich Perry, uh, Jim McNeely, they came to us and said, uh, we have a problem, and William Patterson's the solution to it. And the problem is, uh, they said, we're still playing the same pieces of music that Thad handed out in 1966. And they turned to sawdust. Mm -hmm. They said, you know, we'll have a sub in, and the sub will say, uh, John, what do I do about letter B? And he'll say, why, what's wrong? And the guy will hold it up, and there is no letter B. There's, you know, like a football-sized missing <laughs> piece that was, you know, it's in Europe somewhere, yeah. you know. So the charts are literally falling apart. So they are in the process continuously of taking the older charts offline, recopying them so they're clear, and we're taking the originals. So uh, at, at first, that collection was in, we have an archive room in the library, and it was a few of archival score boxes. But then, a couple of years later, Clark Terry came to us and said that he wanted us to have his archive. And Clark has we all know is an icon, Duke Ellington and Basie, who, who can say that? Nobody. Right. Right. And was on our faculty for years, yes, too. As yes, was on our faculty. You, at one point, uh, near the end of his life, in his 80s uh, and later 70s, he lived in Haworth, New Jersey, oh, okay. which is maybe 20 minutes from here. And during that time, we got connected. And so when Clark Terry comes to you and says that, you don't, you don't say, sure, Clark, and put it in a closet somewhere. And 
thank heavens, I'm grateful, we are grateful to the administration that they stepped up and said, let's dedicate this space to it. So it's a three-room space here that uh, everybody will see uh, soon. And that archive is Clark's horns, about a hundred of his uh, big band charts from people like Ernie Wilkins and Phil Woods and Frank West and everybody. And memorabilia from the Ellington band, from his time in the Basie band, awards, everything. And now that has expanded. The person who actually was really closely related to getting that Clark thing to happen was James Williams, who was uh, the jazz director at that point. After Thad left, just to do the chronology, uh, Rufus Reed was Thad's yeah. bass player. Sure. And Rufus hired me. Mm. So if anybody has a problem, you know, it's Rufus's <laughs> fault. And, uh, and he was a real mentor, is still a mentor to me. He was here for 20 years. And uh, he and my predecessor, Marty Criven, really were the people who put the program on the map. Mm -hmm. Internationally, nationally, mm -hmm. they were the people who brought in people like uh, the saxophonist Bill Evans, who then went with Miles, Carl Allen, Eric Alexander, a lot of the, uh, you might say, earlier generation people here who've really had made, who have major careers, they brought them in and the level got super high. Mm -hmm. um, then after Rufus retired, to himself be an arranger and composer. Now he has kind of a whole new career. It's happening. amazing, right? Yes. It's, it's really, yeah. Uh, sure does. He's really on the international scene now as a composer, arranger. I mean, yeah. Uh, we were at the Grammys together and we were standing in line waiting for our medals. It was kind of <laughs> cool. It's kind of cool to be here, we said, you know. And I'm standing next to Rufus Reed, you know, but he's already a, a major iconic jazz figure. But this, this composing, arranging thing for Rufus really, you know, later in life, he kind of started writing large ensemble music much later in life, and now he's known equally for that as being a great jazz bass player. So yeah. I'm very pleased for him. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, we're it's all very proud. This, yeah. this is, uh, well, I can't wait to show everybody what uh, Dave took us through a little bit here as we were uh, uh, looking at it. But we, we should point out, and our, our fine videographer, Kent Smith, uh, pointed this out to us today, that it is Clark's birthday today as we uh, are shooting this video. So. This seemed like uh, it worked out rather well. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. would have been uh, uh, 97th birthday. So today. this is a uh, big well. thank you to Clark Terry, I suppose, today, and a happy well, birthday to Clark. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, so and on that cue, this space and the name Living Jazz Archives is really Clark's brainchild. Mm. Because uh, I knew that other places, Washington, you know, Library of Congress, everything, they were courting him. And I said, why Wayne, New Jersey? And he said, well, all those places are wonderful, of course, but he said, what I was looking for was some place that would take just the same archival care of the stuff, but that there could be a copy on the music stands with a sort of a constantly renewing crop of really fine young players. Because he said, my legacy is as much teaching as it is playing. Mm -hmm. and he said, I want that legacy. He said, we're not talking about... I remember he kind of broke the ice because you're talking about an archive. You're talking about basically something dying. It's like working on somebody's will. Yeah. It felt like an attorney or something. And he broke that ice by saying, we're not talking about the fact I'm an old guy and going to die. He said, we're talking about 75 years from now when we're all looking up at the lawn instead of down at it. And nobody knows even, not only is there nobody who knew us, there's not anybody who knew anybody who knew us. In other words, the connection's busted. Yeah. So at that point, what is the legacy? And, and all of a sudden, it became a project for the two of us. And that 
has now spread throughout the whole archive as a mission. You know, to put it in front of the, the grad arranging students, yes. the big band here, we have jazz orchestra here, every concert we play features some Clark and some Thad, and mm. the, the students, when they play a Thad Jones chart, they play a copy of the ink parts that the band played. So you cool. know, same thing with Clark, they're so taking great. stuff right off the band book. Mm. So, you know, for a young student, you know, next year's freshman, as we sit here, next year's freshmen were born in 2000. So they don't know any time when there was no internet or, or anything. So right. for a lot of young students, you know, these, these guys are old black and white pictures and a, and a YouTube click. They don't understand that they walked here, mm -hmm. that they were people, and that they worked and practiced eight hours a day just like they should be. It's yeah. a great role model. Mm. The whole thing is... It's kind of about work ethic and about, um, you know, the, the greatest compliment one of our students can say is, you know, they're in here a couple hours and they walk out and they go, wow, I feel like I've been hanging with these guys for a little mm -hmm. bit. I really feel close. I feel I understand something about how they worked and how they thought. That's the whole and, trick. And, and directly there's things here that the students study. I mean, very, very specific things. You're going to see Clark Terry's horns in a minute. I mean, occasionally you open up the glass and let a student play oh, yeah. on Clark's horns. That's a big deal. I mean, for a trumpet student, that's kind of a uh, you know, coming to the holy grail and playing the instrument. Uh, for the arranging students, again, I will bring the students here for the Thad Jones uh, portion of my graduate lecture class. And we will look at the original scores, the hand scores, which we're going to show you before today is over, of, uh, fans, of Thad's actual hand. Some of the music from the late 50s. Uh, one thing in particular we'd like to show today is uh, his arrangement composition called The Deacon, which was recorded on one of the five most famous big band records in history called Chairman of the Board. I mean, you ask anyone who knows about this music and you ask them to say, name five important records, that's going to be on everyone's list. And that album featured Frank Foster, um, Frank West, and Thad Jones as arrangers. So it's a big deal. It's like looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls when you look at <laughs> the paper yeah. with the pencil and you look at uh, Thad's hand, not just for the voicings we study and all that stuff, but you just see the meticulousness and the care he put into his work. And that alone tells the student something. Yeah. I should be thoughtful and careful about my work and, and be excellent at all times just like Thad does. And for a lot of students, they, they hold the score in their hands and they say, so what is this? And I will say, well, that, it's Thad. It's Thad's right. Yeah, I know, but who wrote this? And I said, Thad Jones. And <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden, it's kind of like, boom, their head kind of goes, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, they, the, that whole process is almost a lost art. The process of having the big score paper, sure. and it starts to get kind of hazy, and you got to take the big gum eraser and get the, right. you know. Right, Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, we did it's that a, years ago. Yes, <laughs> yes. Never in ancient times, <laughs> used to hammer the scrolls into stone. Right. You know, and yeah, it, uh, I should point process. out, too, additionally, you've added uh, Michael Brecker's uh, yes. archives, which uh, Dave was showing me some of... Uh, I, it's just incredible. It's in, in, inspiring. You're just inspired to see it, but you're seeing Michael's actual handwritten thing. You're seeing his reharmonization of certain things on his own tunes. It's just like... It's like a look inside Mike's brain, you know, and, and, yes. and what he, how he was approaching. It's just, uh, it's remarkable. So, uh, working so, out those solo yeah. pattern lines too. We think yep. of so much vocabulary stuff, um, and you watch him do variation after variation on the diminished scale or something, and, and and then you hear some of that stuff on those records. I mean, that's that's kind of cool too, seeing that yeah. connection. Some of the most surreal things I didn't show you yet. We'll 
look in a minute, but we have eight of Mike's practice notebooks. Right. Starting back to when he was a freshman at Indiana U to up to and including the production notes for Pilgrimage for the last album. Some of those things must have been written a month before he died. They had wow. to be. So yeah, it's his whole life and he was meticulous about it, you know, December tenth, nineteen seventy eight. Do this in all keys with like a star and he's got a thing and then he works it out. It's unbelievable. We've already had two groups of students do projects where they took lines out of that, find them in the recordings, and just compare and you can see how things develop. It's oh, awesome. it's amazing, yeah. surreal. Well this you know. is gonna be great. Why don't we uh, why don't we dive in and get started? Yeah, yeah. This go. is fantastic. Let's go. All right, being that it's Clark Terry's birthday and yeah. that he was the uh, the original inspiration behind uh, a lot of this, sure. why don't we start with a little uh, uh, overview of some of the things that uh, Clark uh, Terry is about. Check this bag out. This is Clark's gig bag. Beautiful. Still in pretty uh, pretty good shape, right, Dave? Yeah, yeah. this was uh, green with fungus. And Gwen <laughs> and I went on the internet, you know, like, how do, how do you get green stuff off a of snake skin, you know? It's funny, the first thing is make sure the snake is not alive at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, so we kind of rejuvenated it, and there it is. This uh, down here is actually Miles' gig bag. At the ceremony, at the dedication ceremony for Clark's archive, Miles' son showed up and said, we want you to have this. Oh, wow. And it's, uh, yeah, so that uh, Miles, of course, was one of Clark's first students, along with Quincy Jones. Wow. So and then, and there's, a, of course, a, a couple of his horns. Two of the uh, uh, old CT model flugelhorns. You can tell from the, uh, there's close-ups of these on the website, on the archive website. The trumpet is a prototype that, as you can tell, he played it quite a bit, but wasn't his regular thing. It was more of a design model. But the flugelhorn he played for about 10 years. And it's gold-plated, but it's been, uh, you can probably tell from the close-up, it's kind of been... Uh, customized different joints and different uh, stuff got added and, and changed so was, we have a whole uh, uh, one whole box full of photos of him playing with this mm. magazine covers album covers one of Clark's pipes had a whole collection of Meerschaum pipes <laughs> some famous iconic photos of Clark with those some mutes he's got the Clark Terry valve oil yep, the Clark Terry model valve oil I like the uh... and for any saxophonist looking on this is uh, Eddie Harris reed trumpet mouthpiece, which is super rare. It was a, actually a, a, a stowaway in that trumpet bag. Wow. Clark said, Eddie never gave me one of those. I said, I think he did. <laughs> so, it, uh, yeah, so it's destined to show up, and that's Eddie, Eddie's handwriting, how to use it, which reads. I like the, uh, the Grammy nomination yep. for him and uh, Bob Brookmeyer, yes. 1965. Yep. Very cool. And Clark, I asked Clark about, you know, putting a plunger mute in there. He said, really? You really want to put a toilet plunger? And I said, that was one of your main weapons. He said, yeah. okay, then you got to take one of the blue ones and I'll autograph it. So he did. That's cool. Let's take a look at some music from Bob. Uh, okay. Clark. Well, we have his entire, the entire uh, book of the Big Bad Band, which was a kind of an all-star band. You know, the sax section was Ernie Wilkins and Jimmy Heath and uh, Chris Woods. This is Clark's tune, Sheba, Ballad. And you can tell this is the uh, our main mission right here. These are all ozolids and it's uh, light sensitive. So you can see the edges of a page. 
first they turn red, then they get darker, then fade to black. Right. So the idea is each of these pages is interleafed with a piece of acid-free paper, and these folders are acid-free, the boxes are acid-free. So the idea is to make a copy, make one archival copy, and then this, except for special occasions like this, this kind of goes into deep freeze. And then at least you can slow down the deterioration sure. of it. And you know, also, just open up the page again. When students take a look at this, they're seeing handwritten copies, one. But two, the beauty and the meticulous artistry of the handwritten copies yeah, shows right. a level of detail and love and seriousness about doing a professional job that students need to see in a way that you can get from the software, Finale, Sibelius, whatever it is. But to have done this by hand, without the benefit of machines, to me, even if I don't even know who the copyist was per se, but the professionalism of the era, for them to see that means that I expect more from them when they have machines to, <laughs> to help them out if someone could do work like this by hand. Yep. Yeah, it's so a great just point. seeing uh, that is a lesson in itself. Are, yeah, they're just magnificent. Yep. Done. Each of them. There was an art to this. Super. Dave, what do you got in here? I see some, uh, some then These uh, are, and, uh, so this is Clark's big band life. This is uh, a whole folder of his small group tunes. And these, this is Clark's handwriting. And this great feature as you scroll down this is his tune, Staying Over, but if you look at the bottom, he must have written it while he was in Duke's band, because that's a sheet of actual Duke Ellington manuscript paper. You know, it's Passantino, but then Duke had special sheets that had his signature at the bottom. Wow. So, yeah. Incredible. And so there's, uh, uh, there's about 80 of these tunes, and we split them. Clark and Glenn kept half of them to give to people to... Some, I think, are going to be sold, and we took half of them. So we have half scans and half the real deal. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, this is the piece de resistance <laughs> here. I just can't even believe this. I love it. Well, fortunately, Clark had 10 years of date books, most of them during the 60s when he was really at the center of the American music heart in New York. Doing, doing everything. Three recording magical. sessions a day, right. a member of the Tonight Show band. It should be noted that he was the first African American on regular nightly TV. Ah. You know, for current students, I always try to make the analogy that, you know, back then Clark was Quest Love. Ah. You know, he was the guy often that the camera panned to when Johnny Carson made a joke or said something about the band. Clark would be the guy who was featured a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So that's where, you know, mumbles his sort of alter ego. They still do every once in a while the stump the band deal on TV where some audience member says, uh, do you know a tune called, you know, it's some Girl Scout tune from 1950. Who would know this? And it was Clark's job to put his hand up and say, oh, sure, I know that. And he would make up some incoherent blues that, that sort of, wove that title in and also had some kind of political content often, you know. So in that way, he was kind of the first rapper. He yeah. actually had a date that never happened to be on a Snoop Dogg record. Oh, wow. Snoop Dogg was in Arkansas. They actually met. Quincy Jones brought him together. Oh, and it wow. unfortunately never happened. But Quincy's point to Snoop was, you know, if you're going to be the whatever, the godfather of rap, you have to know where you came from. Mm -hmm. And Clark was one of the first rappers. Yeah. So 
Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And this was his date book. This is one of the, this is the DE page. So you, it's, how, it's hilarious, really. How, you, That's you, my favorite You, you thing. know you've uh, achieved some success when the first four entries are Duke, Dizzy, Kenny Dorm, Miles Davis. Yeah. <laughs> Gil Evans, Paul Chambers, Eric Dolphy. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, these, this page somehow made it onto the, made it online. Somebody posted it. And we had all sorts of complaints like, you're intruding on the privacy. I said, they've all been dead for 40 years. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be a problem. But one of the projects our students want to do is to call all these numbers and say, right. do you have any idea whose phone number you have? You know. <laughs> Let's take a look at the flip side of this and go this through is amazing. A, a week of... Uh, this could be any given week in 1960. Yeah. Any yeah, given there's, week. There's probably 20 weeks like this. Take but us through this that, is yeah. the final week of 1960. And... Uh, you can see on Monday and Wednesday, he was the contractor for the Ray Charles record, Genius Plus Soul Equals Jazz, and he actually contracted the whole Basie band. But because Count didn't play, of course, because it was a Ray Charles record, Ray was playing piano, they aren't billed as that. But if you look at the lineup, it's the 1960-61 Basie band. So that's Monday and Wednesday. He's on a Blue Mitchell record uh, on uh, December 27th, and... I'm blanking on the name, but uh, if anybody has good discographical skills, they can figure <laughs> it out. And then on Thursday, he's on the Cannonball Adderley record. I think that's called African Waltz. And then he has like a, a gig on Thursday and a New Year's Eve gig from oh, 11 to 3 would. at the Rockland <laughs> I Palace. <laughs> and he's doing the Tonight Show every day. Right, right. You know, Unbelievable. It's, it's, you know, and this yeah. is the week between Christmas and New Year's, right. typically a right. slower yeah, week. This is a slower week <laughs> oh, sometimes it's just packed. And, you know, he would have Tonight Show, Tonight Show, this record date, that. And then he'd have, you know, like Thursday afternoon softball, Central Park, parentheses, <laughs> get Ella to play outfield. He said, not many people know that, Clark would say. Ella, yes, she'd say, he'd say, of course, great singer, but what an arm. It's amazing. <laughs> Inside look at the jazz. That's business, awesome. You know? Well, yeah, so. well, happy birthday to Clark Terry. This is uh, what, a, what a great uh, look and, at this and, and stuff. Uh, and uh, for this purpose, we owe him everything for this archive. That's awesome. It was his idea, and it wouldn't exist without him. Beautiful. All right, let's take a look at some uh, Thad uh, artifacts. Yeah. And uh, another part of the Living Jazz Archives is this amazing collection of uh, LPs. And before we move on to Thad, Dave, show us uh, some of the, the, the incredible early stuff. Well, from Clark. these are all Clark's LPs that he donated. And this group is a group of Clark's LPs that he should have had, but he probably gave it away. So <laughs> thank you, eBay, yeah, for right. filling that collection in. These are, this is what ended up being the releases of Clark's first recording session. They're on V discs, which were. Uh, LPs issued 78 RPM issued by the government for the troops started mm. during World War II mm. you know and oftentimes you'd have you know the current quote unquote rock stars Frank Sinatra saying hello boys we're behind you and here's a couple of tunes for you it was almost like a letter to them mm. you know and Clark did uh, uh, Billy's Bounce about eight months after Bird recorded it about 40 points slower interesting kind of <laughs> like a groove tempo and this is something he calls phalanges like the finger bones and mm. it's a finger twister head that he did and clark's ear we have a recording of clark singing this tune and somebody brought it up to him and he sings it and he's in exactly the same key and the same tempo and it had to be mm. what is that 65 years later and he hadn't heard it 
This when he heard this record, it was the first time he'd heard it since he did it. That's a, a, a an expression on his face that's priceless, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, I was twenty. Great stuff. All right, well let's okay. uh, let's forge ahead and uh, okay. here, here's I see we can see it uh, by the labels yeah. on the outside. This incredible collection of Thad Jones scores and parts yeah. as well. So scores and parts. These are um, uh, if you want to pan down mm -hmm. here. These bigger. Uh, I call them pizza boxes. Sorry, mm. but yeah, it's <laughs> a very <laughs> large and expensive, expensive historic pizza, pizza right. order. Yeah, so these are all uh, Thad scores, and the way you store these, by the way, it's always flat, and you shouldn't do more than about an inch and a half or two, because then the weight of the paper gets too. Do you mind if heavy. we pull one of these out? Sure, and take a let's look? do it. Uh, Maybe this Greetings sure. and salutations. Oh wow! Yeah. Yep. Mm. That's a pretty iconic one. Again, all archival uh, acid-free paper, acid-free folder, and this is uh, Thad's arrangement of Love Walked In. Never wow. recorded. Oh, wait, this might have been for the Basie band. There were a couple of Basie dance albums. You know, dance Basie would have, Basie. Yeah, but other ones, too, where, you know, Basie had, I th it, it felt like on Roulette he had a, some kind of contract where I'll do one album for me and the band, where we'll feature our guys, Thad, and our arrangers. Then we're going to do one for the folks. Mm. And so they'd be little four-minute dance charts. Uh-huh. You know, Basie plays for lovers, you know, those things during the 60s. And, and the so Thad is, would write some of those. Yeah, you know, the thing is also the language of articulation from the 50s and 60s yeah. has changed a bit in, in terms of arranging. Mm -hmm. These accents may have actually been played short, mm -hmm. whereas the vocabulary of how to write a short note has changed a little bit uh, in terms of modern arranging articulation technique. But again, the meticulousness, the neatness, you know, he was so careful about uh, how he presented the music. You know, we, and the next score sample, we'll look at some of the actual voicing techniques he used. But uh, it's all right here. I mean, this is, yeah. to me, it's like, the, like I said before, the Dead Sea Scrolls to see actual handwritten scores from the 50s, particularly the older stuff. So we see where Thad started. Because we, we think of Thad Jones so much about his work in the 60s and 70s. But to see his work with the Count Basie Orchestra, um, he was already an experienced writer by that point. Mm -hmm. To see much of that technique brought into the 60s, when actually, we hate to say it, but he got in a little bit of trouble with Basie for writing a little too complicated. Well, there I mean, was there's that whole story about uh, the record that he was going to write for Basie in, I think, 1963. Uh, seven arrangements, which were going to be recorded by the Basie band. Um, you probably know the story better than I do, but the record didn't happen. And what those arrangements later became was the beginning of the Thad Jones Mellows Jazz Orchestra. Right. Yeah, because during the 60s, there were late 50s and 60s, there was an album they did with Benny Carter. There was an album they did uh, with Quincy Jones or other sort of guest arrangers, and he wanted to feature Thad. But yeah, it's just too... Too much. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> have just that spot on the Deacon where he has the rhythm section drop out and the horns play by themselves wait a minute, you know, <laughs> Freddie Green not playing quarter notes, this is against procedure. And that snuck onto the record somehow. But then the stuff that Big Dipper, uh, uh, Little Pixie, some of those things That's that became freedom. the first ones, that, that was going to be recorded by Basie, and Basie mm -hmm. just thought it was too complicated for the, for the vibe of the band, for the repertoire of the band. So They still have that Basie swinging thing, totally. but they break every possible rule that you could break. With that in mind, why don't we why don't we take a look at the uh, the score from the Deacon that uh, you guys are wanted to uh, describe to us? Sure. Well, 
One of my favorite records in jazz history is the chairman of the board. I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, years ago, I was asked to participate in a survey of the five most important, your five personal most famous, important jazz big band records, and I picked five of them. Here's a copy of it. This was released in, I believe, 1960. Um, and there's a cover of the LP. And when, when all was said and done, all the arrangers chimed in about their five favorite albums, this was universally selected. In fact, Dennis McCrell, who for the longest time has been the drummer and the leader of the Count Basie Orchestra, we were discussing uh, our favorite Basie records. He said, invariably, this is the one that's the go-to album if you want to know about the Basie band of the, particularly the 50s and 60s, maybe of all time, because yep. of the important writing. And the current leader, we're still working with the Basie band. Scotty Barnhart's the leader now, and he, he said when new guy comes on the band, they still say, listen, listen to, to this, this record. This mm -hmm. is what the band sounds like. That's this really important to this genre to understand this record. I have anyone, if any of my students have gaps in knowledge, I point them in this direction first before listening to Marie Schneider or Bob Mincer or Brooke Meyer or newer writers. I make sure they know something about this. That in mind, then they come to the archive and see this, the Deacon, which is on this recording. And this is Thad's actual hand, pencil score. I don't know what year he composed this because it released, the album was released in 1960. But sometime before that session, he wrote this in the 1950s. And because this is the 50s, and, we, and Thad Jones's writing developed into the 60s and became a bit more complicated, a lot more dense harmonically, some of that activity is still happening here in the 1950s. So this is kind of like, in some ways, primordial Thad. What he later became in terms of harmonic density, it, you can start to see some of that here. It works for Basie because Basie likes simplicity and Basie liked melody. But you can already sort of see some of the complexity of Thad's writing. This is a melody in the key of F major. This is a transposed score. So you see the trumpet melody here. Very nice diatonic sounding melody. But what happens underneath in the harmonization, just looking at that, you see a whole bunch of secondary dominance. This is the secondary dominant of that, which is the secondary dominant of that, which is the secondary dominant of that, another one, another one, arriving back at F. It's a blues till we get to the B flat seven. All these secondary dominants are key to the style of Thad Jones. You can already see things like this, chromatic bass lines going down, contrary motion between the unison opening up to the larger voicings. So th those things alone are very uh, typical of Thad Jones's arranging style, and this is happening earlier in his career. You can see where it's going. Just these two bars alone tell mm -hmm. you this is going to be a big part of what makes Thad Jones Thad Jones. He already is an important writer, but then explodes in the 60s as a world-renowned composer, arranger, band leader. All the voicings are here, too. We talk about that in our lectures. And just to see his hand, and also, this is one of my favorite spots, he meant to write another F down here. You see, it's an F7 chord going to a B flat, but he changed his mind. He went F to A to B flat. He wanted a different kind of voice leading. Originally, he was going to do something simpler, and he changes his mind. And that's very cool for students to see. You know, nothing is ingrained in stone, and you may have to lose some things in your writing. Even Thad Jones changed his mind. So it's pretty cool. Great. He was a real master of the cycle of fifths. That's exactly right. right. So many of his tunes, three and one, mean what you say, so many of his historic charts are about the cycle of fifths somehow. Right, right. Tritone substitutes going right. around. 
lots and lots of harmony, more so than most arranger composers. That's one of the things I think Thad brought to the table as a composer arranger. Just more harmonic density, chord, 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 chord. But what made it work was the simplicity and diatonic or bluesy bebop sounding melody. It's an accessible melody that everybody gets with tons of moving harmony. And the marriage of those two things is what makes Thad's music, I'm not going to say accessible, but understandable and enjoyable, definitely. And, and always swinging like crazy, yeah, always. That's a prerequisite. And I think that may have that come from the changed. Basie tradition, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all of that is present in looking at his actual hand. So well said, Pete. That's great uh, analysis. Fantastic. We could stay on Thad all day, that's yeah. for sure. But let's, uh, why don't we take a look at some of the uh, Michael Brecker uh, okay. artifacts. Okay. Fantastic. Sadly, in, uh, I guess it was 2007, we 2007. lost uh, one of the great instrumentalists of all time, Michael Brecker, and uh, I was so uh, inspired to see what you've already done with, with Mike's uh, music and that it's existing in this and for people to see and, and living on. And uh, um, Dave, take us through uh, everything. You've got, you've got recordings, you've got scores, you've got, uh, I love how you documented the Grammys that went along with those uh, recordings, but uh, take us through what, uh, what you've done well, here. Well, it's interesting that this actually uh, quite directly comes via Clark Terry. You wouldn't connect Mike Brecker and Clark Terry, but uh, Randy Brecker was here as a guest with our jazz orchestra. Some of Pete's students wrote charts for him and everything. And Randy said, you know, I really want to see Clark's archive. I heard you have Clark's archive here. And I said, oh, that's, that's great. And Randy says, not many people realize that all of my first gigs when I got to New York from Indiana and I did a European tour were via Clark. He said, my ho I owe my whole career getting started to Clark. So he saw Clark's stuff, and uh, I think it made a, good, a great impression on him. And he said, you know, I really would love to get Mike's stuff here. This was just a couple of years after Mike had died. It was mm -hmm. still very raw. And uh, I said, you know, don't, don't say that unless you mean it. That would be, my God, that would be a game changer, you know, for everybody. And uh, eventually it happened. Randy worked with Mike's wife, Susan, who's very active in cancer research funding. She's a fantastic person. And the two of them and I have been working on this. So we have all of Mike's sheet music from his debut album <clears throat> all the way through to uh, working with Gil Goldstein on uh, getting the pilgrimage music because that all came through Gil's computer, really. He did all the writing. But early on, you know, it spans, uh, you know, it's ink copyists in 1987 and then you get more into computer uh, notation and so the, the the mode changes but the music is just as killing then we have all the Brecker Brothers stuff Mike's compositions uh, Randy's compositions and then other things uh, stand arrangements of standard tunes Mike has his own his own uh, chart on giant steps that's a you gotta you gotta hold on to the chair for that <laughs> different changes on autumn leaves, et cetera. And then you can see some of the things. I mean, here's music from his tours with Chick Corea, the Three Quartets record. We have all that stuff. Charlie Hayden, Herbie Hancock, Directions and Music, Elvin, Pat, Pat Metheny. We have a lot of Pat's tunes in his handwriting. You know, so wow. it crosses over. It's not just Mike. Yeah. You know, it was a whole, this wonderful packet. He did, um, a, you know, Mike and Randy played with, uh, uh, with Horace Silver. For a while sure. in the 70s and they did a reunion thing i think it was called uh, hard bop grand pop that's what <laughs> taurus called it and there's this beautiful letter to mike 
from Horace saying, this is going to be so great. I valued having you guys. Here's the music. So you get that personal stuff from a lot of major artists. That's so cool. And this is about six to 700 cassettes, mm. gig cassettes. For the young folks out there, show us what a cassette looks like, Dave. <laughs> Humans used to listen to music on these things. Yeah, so this is uh, uh, performance cassettes from his solo career. Starting with the earliest gigs that the band played, Hunt's Tavern, Vermont, and my old school at UMaine Augusta. Those were the first two gigs that he did as a band leader. And he kept everything. And most of them are board tapes. Wow. So they're super high quality. Broadcast stuff from Europe and Japan. And then, so it's a lot of solo career, but then it goes uh, rehearsal tapes with the Brecker brothers, stuff that goes back, uh, for example, that great band that Mike and Randy played in with Hal Galper, it was a quintet, Hal only had three recordings of that band. Hmm. Mike had nine more. So Hal, it was like seeing a guy on Christmas morning, you know. <laughs> I gave Hal nine more CDs that he didn't have. It was kind of like, you got Hal, hallelujah, you know. <laughs> you got some, uh, some Recordings from Steps Ahead with the yes. great band that uh, a lot of a lot of Mike things the, the various you know it started as an acoustic fusion band really and then it got super electrified with the Iwi and right. all that stuff we actually have the original uh, instruction tech books for the Iwi from Niall Steiner because Mike was really kind of working with him to invent it uh -huh. you know can you uh, show us his his uh, notebooks on yeah. his uh... this is the most perhaps amazing part of the archive is. Uh, sketchbooks, practice notebooks, and we're still trying to work, we're, we're not trying to work, we're working with Susan to try to figure out what's going to happen with these, because it's 800 pages of practice notes, and some of it is transcribed solos, you know, it's Mike's transcription of, my, of train playing on Blue Train, uh -huh. but it's Mike's transcription. You don't want to publish that, because there's all kinds of copyright, but there are hundreds of pages that look like this one. February 13, January 13th, and February 21, 1986. You know, and you can see this bottom thing. A minor, just 2-5 in G, but it's this great pattern, mm -hmm. you know. It's a great little thing, and Mike's constantly working on this. And uh, see, here's, here's Joe Henderson on Isotope. Hmm. And that, but then he'll take a lick... See, A, then he says MB. So he took something from this and said, okay, now you're going to do that all over the horn. And he has to-do lists. It's surreal. The work it's amazing. ethic is, uh, yeah, in addition to the see. genius talent and uh, the work ethic that goes along with it, right? Yeah. And these are the production notes for his final album. Wow. And it's a little bit of a crossword puzzle because all the titles got changed. So you have to figure out what he's talking about. Okay. That happens actually on a lot of his albums, where it'll just say number one, or it'll say Mike's fast tune. And then I have to get my horn out, play it, and I go, oh, you know, that slings and arrows. I know that. It just didn't get titled till after the album. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this, is, this had to have been a month before he passed. Had mm -hmm. to have been. So, you know, because that was really the last thing he did. He died yeah. right after that, that album was produced. Wow. Uh, we have a lot of... Uh, his his own uh, CDs. His son Sam, who's now a, a policeman, just did a fundraiser up in Hastings, mm -hmm. where they lived, for uh, 
cancer research. Sam wants to keep his LPs. God bless him. That's fantastic. So uh, thank you, eBay, again. I yeah. mean, I, I knew Mike, I'm proud to say, for a long time. We studied with Joe Allard together. Mike a little before me. So I met him through that, and once you meet somebody at that level, I know you feel the same way. You meet a giant like that, you, you stay in touch. You don't let that slip away. So I kind of had this list in my head anyway. So it's all of Mike's solo records, anything that has his name on it. And then it goes over into CD, and then it's all the sideman stuff, kind of Abercrombie to Frank Zappa. You know that record, Frank Zappa, live in New York? Absolutely. Yeah, it's great. And then these are all Japanese swing journals that are all cover issues with Mike, and they are thorough. Everything has dozens of transcribed solos, all in Japanese, of course, but we, right. but when you have your horn in your hand, you understand what they're talking about. Mike's list of his favorite this and that, their list of, you know, 10 great Mike Brecker solos that nobody knows, and they're right. I've learned a great deal from these things. Some of his fake books, uh, his high school yearbook, Cheltenham, <laughs> Pennsylvania, Mike Brecker trivia, his classmate was Benjamin Netanyahu. That's right. Yes. It's quite Principal, actually... A, a, a premier of Israel. Kent uh, and I, our, our, our colleague who was in the Stone's Horn section, uh, a gentleman named Andy Snitzer, very fine yes. saxophone player and solo artist in his own right. Yeah. Also graduate of Cheltenham High School, David Fink, oh, the right. great bass player. Right. Yes. And, of course, Reggie Jackson. So yes. Got to have yeah, the Reggie, uh, international sports star. <laughs> the, to throw yeah, Reggie and Randy were actually <laughs> on student council together. Because <laughs> Reggie, he said, was real politically active at that time. Huh. And they, he was a class president or something, so he said he did a lot of stuff. Wow. So Reggie's a little older. Mike is, yeah. I guess, what, four years younger, I think. Wow. Well, yeah. that's Cheltenham High School. There you go. Yep. You know, and, and over here, I know this is still a work in progress, but it shows some well, of the, uh, Pete was pointing this out uh, earlier, but you've got, uh, you know, some Bill Holman chart, just a, an amazing additional stuff that's being well, this, being uh, archived at this point. As we, as we speak this just came to us with great thanks to don sebesky he gave us about 300 uh pencil scores to various projects you can see uh yeah some of the stuff he had was virtually the entire repertoire of the 1950s birdland dream band maynard ferguson so it was about 20 bill holman charts uh Oh, Manny album. I mean, it's amazing group of charts. But all the rest of these boxes, literally, they arrived. I've been waiting because I had the charts out on the table. It looked like some kind of uh, a ranger convention from hell. <laughs> right, I remember. But I had them all organized, you know, with little stickies. Just made. It took me about three months to get them organized and reorganized. And so here's, um, uh, uh, for example, a big Ellington tribute. Uh, Barbara Streisand charts, Liza Minnelli, uh, uh, Stephen Sondheim, Symphonic Sondheim, that was a great record. Uh, some of the things from CTI, Giant Box, things for uh, Freddie Hubbard and uh, Hubert Laws, Paul Desmond, some of those wonderful records. And there's uh, also about a thousand LPs. So that that's going to be a huge collection. Mm. And it's, you know, Don is central to this thing and the other thing is like again again when, when students come here on their own they can they could spend a week in this place just looking sure. at all that music from a writer's from the improvisers studying the patterns the sketchbooks from the the music itself the arrangers obviously like we have a, a, a lecture on arranging for vocalists 
So I show them certain things, but I have yet to do this because these are so new. I would bring them up and I'd say, guess what? Let's look at something that Sebesky wrote for Barbara Streisand. You know, mm -hmm. not too shabby. Yeah, and and, and kind of high profile too. Yeah. Very professional. I mean, to get to see that again, it's like the Dead Sea Scrolls, like with mm -hmm. Thad Jones. This is, you know, important stuff too. So this, yeah. There's a wide variety of stuff here that students can study. And there's a big connection too. This is the I Remember Bill album, big Bill Evans tribute. That's a historic album. We have about 90 orchestral charts that he wrote for John and Bucky Pizzarelli. And Bucky was one of the first faculty here. You know, Bucky's kind of the dean of music in Patterson, New Jersey. You know, right. that, that city has a history that goes back 150 years. Sure. Italian marching bands, the festival bands and everything. And the Pizzarelli family comes out of that. Yeah. So this is a curious reconnection we're doing with John and Bucky through Sebesky. So correct. Yep, it's amazing. So we're just getting to know, you know, there's charts in every one of these boxes. And then there's one down here. The, the bottom right has a big question mark on it. That's stuff I still can't identify. <laughs> and as soon as I sit down with Don, he'll know exactly what it is, but I can't, you know, it's page 13 of something, <laughs> and I can't figure out where it belongs. You're so prolific, so. I mean, so it's almost like a needle in a haystack to try oh, to yeah, figure out yeah. what, could this, what session could that have been? Yeah, I mean, this What about, show could that have been? Yeah. yeah, there's 310 charts. It's, you know, about 2,000 pages, score pages, orchestral, right. some big band with a lot of orchestral scores. So. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of scary this summer. Incredible. Like nobody, don't open the window, <laughs> nobody sneezes, you know, just to get all this stuff together and to try to figure out where it came from, what this, this song title, some of them he'd say for Barbara Streisand on the thing, but sometimes it'd just be the tune and I would, I'm on the for internet. For Dave Dempsey. To, your I didn't find any of those. I was waiting for my feature album you to know, show up in here. A torch song. We're going to do a torch song. Yeah, fortunately for music, I, there's no vocal charts for me. There's only been two people in my job in the 45 years of the program. That's me and Marty Criven, Dr. Martin Criven, who was actually a classical clarinetist who was on the faculty for 30 years before I got here. He retired in 1992, and uh, I was his successor, and I hope that at least one day I've been able to step up to what he did. He's the person who hired Thad Jones here. He invented the Jazz Room series, which is now celebrating its 40th year, our concert series. His wife, Joanne Criven, was a jazz photographer. And so this is her photographs. This is a touring show of about 20 beautiful prints. For example, Exhibit A, Bob Brookmeyer. Fantastic picture. And there's 20 photos like that. Behind that is matted photos that are unframed of uh, more concert footage over here. And the file is uh, unmatted photos, sort of outtakes from that. And the amazing thing about all this is that every one of these thousands of photos was all taken in the same spot. All these artists were standing on our stage for the jazz room. So you got you know, just saxophone, you got Sonny Rollins, Joe Henderson, Phil Woods, Frank West, Charlie Rouse, it just goes on and on. And so there are actually two books of these photos published. And in that history, it kind of documents the history of the jazz program here as well. So it's really magical to have this. I'm so glad that they donated it to us because it, it documents the history more completely than you would normally do because we had a professional jazz photographer here on a weekly basis you know who can say that so it's wonderful
All right, I hope uh, everybody enjoyed uh, seeing this uh, as much as I did. Uh, Dave and Pete, can't thank you enough for, uh, for sharing this uh, incredible uh, space and what you've done here. Um, you know, we were just kind of saying off camera that uh, we could have spent the entire day on uh, on Thad or the entire day on Clark or Mike. Or so, we do. yeah, obviously you you <laughs> yeah, have uh, weeks weeks lives. and months. Um, um, but anyway, uh, I was going to ask you if somebody not a student but somebody from the community or somebody's visiting in New York, can they come and visit this uh, this archive? Absolutely, it's okay. open for business. Uh, it's on my load to be here publicly two days a week, Monday and Thursday afternoons. But then. If anybody wants to come, you or any professional musician or any visitor in New York uh, wants to come out, I'll just make an appointment to meet him here. And there's also a website, a website, uh, uh, jazz, livingjazzarchives.org. Livingjazzarchives.org, okay. Uh, or you can go to any of these archives, Michael Brecker Archive, all one word, dot org, Clark Terry Archive. James Williams archive.org, what a great musician. Yeah, and now, right. uh, within the next month, Mulgrew Miller's archive will be here too. Okay. And so you can go, and that has uh, photo collections and lists of everything we have. Of course, all these scores, you can't just put those up on the internet. There's, there's on the internet. That was like a, a 70s term I just used. <laughs> but, you know, you, you can't do that because of copyright sure. issues. You yeah, know? Yeah. So the music is here, and uh, it's here for everybody. Wow. And one of the first things people will see when they walk in, sitting where we're sitting right now, are these catalogs that have been organized to give you an idea of what exactly is, in fact, in the archive, um, organized in such a way that you can organize your own desires to see this, that, or the other thing. And all the contents of all of these are on the website. Right. So that you can see from anywhere, you can say, okay, I'm interested in Thad Jones, here's the list of stuff that we have, here's the list of things that Thad wrote for the Basie Band complete, and here are the copies of those that are in the archive, here are the ones that are lost. So it's kind of a status check, too, Very on nice. some of these. So just for review for everybody, we are at William Patterson University in Wayne, New Jersey, the Living Jazz Archives, just a, uh, obviously a wonderful, uh, inspiring uh, place that you guys have created. Uh, continued uh, good work and success with it. We, uh, so much. as all fans of music, we appreciate everything you're doing here, and it's great, and uh, thanks for spending some Thank time you. with us today. It's been, uh, been a real real pleasure. Thanks. For Thank you, Michael. And we great will see you. all of you next time on Bone to Pick. Me, my name is Emma Lumina, 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 my name is Emma Lum